If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to begin reading with verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. May we pray. Father, pray that you will bless us as we open up thy word. May you open up our minds and hearts to receive the engrafted word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I've enjoyed studying this out, this first John. It's a tremendous uh, epistle. There's so much truth in here, and it's searching, and it's a blessing to read the Word of God. The same is true of Ephesians that Brother Dave is going through. It starts out in verse 15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Confess. You know, this is something that when you join a church, you come before the church and you confess publicly that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're confessing to the church that he is your Lord and master, that you surrender your life to him, and that you will follow him all the days of your life. There's this commitment we make when we come before the church and join a congregation of the Lord. The word confess is to speak the same thing that another speaks. This confession of the deity of Jesus Christ, this is what we're confessing, that Jesus is the Son of God, implies surrender and obedience also, not mere lip service. In other words, when we, when we confess Christ openly and publicly, we're saying that we, we, insert, we surrender ourselves and I will be obedient to the Word of God. We all make that confession. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Wherefore I give, give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You say, what does that mean? Anyone can say Jesus is Lord. This is referring to the heart. No one can speak from his heart and say Jesus is Lord, that I'm surrendered to the Lord, I'm obedient to the Lord, except through the Holy Spirit. Now with the mind we can say that. Confession has to be from the mind and from the heart. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is the Christ, and believe in thy heart, that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. See, it's a heart belief. It's a soul, your very being, where God dwells. That's where you bring in your confession from. And only in that sense can you do it through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying. No one can do that confession from the soul except by the Holy Ghost. And that a blessing that is. And it says, Paul said in 1626 as an example, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations. For what? For the obedience of faith. Faith has to have obedience. That's why James is teaching in the book of James. Faith without works is dead. You can say you believe in God, but if you don't trust God, you don't live for God, you don't follow God, it's a dead faith. 
True confession has the idea of yielding, yielding, present. Paul says in Romans 6.13, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. In other words, once we make a confession of faith, we're to present ourselves unto God, yield ourselves to God, be there for God's service as those who have been resurrected from the dead. We are alive. We've been born again from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. He says in verse 16, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. Now this is a very serious verse because if we continue living in sin, it will kill us. I thank God people have had their lives cut short because of disobedience. Or obedience unto righteousness. He says in verse 19, I speak after the manner of man because of the infirmities of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants of uncleanness to uncleanness as to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now... Now that you've made a confession of faith, now that you believe in Jesus Christ, yield your members, servants to righteousness, unto holiness. It's time now to live for God and not live for the devil in simple language. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. It's important to know who you believe in. You believe in the Son of God. The biblical doctrine of the Trinity can be stated in seven simple prepositions. One, God the Father is God. Two, God the Son is God. Three, God the Holy Spirit is God. Now you must keep this distinction. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father. Nevertheless, there is only one God. I know that's a mystery. We cannot grasp with our understanding, but it's revealed in the Scriptures. And because it's revealed, we believe it. One God and three persons. The confession is that Jesus is the Son of God, thus God the Son, thus very God of the very God. He is God. And that's who we believe in. He's not. We don't believe just in a man that lived 2,000 years ago and died on the cross. We believe in the God-man, that he was the son of the living God. That's who we're putting our faith in, our trust in. Now, before the word son is the definite article, I won't get into a lot of that. That just means the presence of the article identifies. So the article is saying he's the son of God. He's being identified from all others. There's only one Son of God in that sense, a deity. He's the Son of God. We're sons of God by adoption. He's the Son of God. Now I want to read you a few verses just to bring that out from the Scriptures to show you the importance of Christ being the Son of God. Mark 1, 1 starts this way. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke 1, 35 says, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called 
the Son of God. Not become the Son of God, be called the Son of God. Because He was the Son of God before He ever took on human flesh. John 10, 36, Say ye of Him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, Thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. He confessed that He, I am the Son of God. John 19, 7, the Jews answered Him, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. They knew what he meant. When he said he was the Son of God, they they knew he was saying, by nature I'm the Son of God, by his nature. John 20, 31 says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. You to believe that he's the son of God. And in Acts 8.37, And Philip said unto the eunuch, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. See, that was his confession. He confessed before Philip, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe we all should make that confession when we come before the congregation and we want to join a congregation. We need to confess, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Acts 9.20, speaking about Paul, it says, And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Acts 9.20. 1 John 3.8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Who was manifested? The Son of God came for the purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 14 of chapter 4 of 1 John. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God, and he in God. In in 1 John 5, 5, who is he that overcometh the world? but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Beloved, that's a great confession when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 20 of that chapter 5, it says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Look at the emphasis John is putting. Twice he mentions believing on the Son of God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Beloved, everything is centered in Jesus Christ, Brother Dave, everything. Paul brings it down and says in chapter 2 of uh, 2 Timothy, verse 19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. He knows His people. He knows His sheep. And His sheep, He said in John chapter 10, they know Him and they follow Him. He goes on and says, The Lord knoweth them that are His. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Beloved, we as Christians, as professing faith in the Son of God, professing that we are surrendered to the Son of God, that we're to follow the Son of God. If we confess the name of Christ, we should do what? Depart from iniquity. Philippians 2.11 says, And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John says in 2 John 
7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and antichrist. In Revelation, we hear, read these verses in chapter 1, uh, 19, verses 1 and 6. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. And I heard, as it were, a voice of great multitude, as the voice of many waters, as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I tell you something, when we all get to glory, that's going to be a glorious day. When all the saints sing and that's together, praises to the Lord Jesus together, we're going to be singing Hallelujah, Hallelujah, unto Him be the glory. That's going to be a marvelous day. Where I know we're all looking forward to that day. Now I have a quote I want to read. I thought he expressed this very well, better than I could express it, by John Gill. But of confession of Christ, as appears from the preceding verse, which lies in a frank and open acknowledgement of what Christ is in himself, and that he is truly and properly God, the Son of God, the true Messiah, the mediator between God and man, and the only Savior of lost sinners, and of the faith in him with respect to ourselves, to our pardon, justification, acceptance, and salvation in him and through him, in ascribing the whole of our salvation to him and giving him the glory of it and declaring to the churches of Christ, that'd be your outward confession, what he has done for our souls and subjecting ourselves to his ordinances, which is baptism and the Lord's Supper. This confession must be made both by words and facts, must be open and visibly. It's done in, a, in the presence of the congregation and before men. And so real Heartly and sincere, the words of the mouth agreeing with the experience of the heart. In other words, this is not just a confession outwardly by the mouth, but it comes from the heart. And I thought John Gill expressed that very clearly. Now we see in, in this verse, God dwelleth in him and he in God. The word dwell means to remain, to stay, to reside, and to abide. You could translate that any of those words. It means the same thing. To dwell in Him and He in God. Verse, uh, verse 16 says, And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. All throughout John's epistle, the word love is a key word. The word love. If you love, it's an evidence you've been born again. If you hate, it's an evidence that you haven't been born again. The word know is in the perfect tense, and the word believe is in the perfect tense, and the word hath is in the present tense. Now this is speaking, this happens in the past with the present results that knowing by experience and by believe, believing and the abiding of God hath to us. We're experiencing his love to us in the present tense. We come to know the Lord in the past. We believe the Lord in the past, and at the present tense, we're enjoying the love of God. Now, that's wonderful that God is still speaking to us of his love. It's, uh, I had a note here. It said, the pronoun is used in the intensive sense. As for us, we have known and believed 
Both verbs are in the perfect tense, emphasizing not only a past completed act, but abiding results in present time of enjoying the love of God in our hearts. Aren't you glad that God sheds sometimes His love in your hearts and you just, you can't describe it. He just lifts you up. You have such a wonderful feeling, a wonderful emotion, such joy unspeakable, Peter says, and full of glory. Now, we don't have those all the time, but when we do, hallelujah. You ever laid on your bed sometime at night thinking about the things of God, and all of a sudden the Lord just brings memory scripture to your mind, and you, boy, another verse and another verse and another verse, and you just, you feel like you're lifted up. And uh, those are precious moments. Now, we don't have them all the time, but sometimes God will bless us with a special blessing of, of lifting up our hearts. We, we may need it. We may be cast down, discouraged, depressed, and God sometimes just opens up our hearts to see His love, and what a blessing that is. First of all, His love toward us or to us. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Now, that word to is a Greek word, in in, in us. I'm going to look at it both ways. God's love toward us and God's love in us. First, we're going to look at God's love toward us. First John 4, 9 says, And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. God's love toward us. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commendeth His love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His love, Christ died for us. He proved His love. And Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, 4 it says, But God who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us. Look at the emphasis. Toward us. He loved us. For us. In, in verse 7 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. Second Thessalonians, Second uh, no, uh, Peter three nine. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering. Notice this to usward, to usward. He's not talking about everybody. Like when he says toward us, he's talking about his people. To usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. This is not teaching that God loves the whole world. He loves those who he says to usward. Who's to usward? Paul was speaking of, uh, Peter was speaking of himself and believers. To usward, not willing that any of us should perish, but all of us should come to repentance. Second Thessalonians 2.13 said, But we are bound to give thanks all the way to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord. We're the beloved of God. Each one of us that are Christian believers are beloved of the Lord because God hath from the beginning chosen you to what? Salvation. Who chose salvation? God did. Chose you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. In other words, you have to be born again before you can believe the truth. Thank God for that. Paul made that clear in 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. Works is out for salvation, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Beloved, salvation began before we ever had a being. Hallelujah. The second preposition that I want to bring out is the word in. It means within. If you have a circle and you're in that circle, that's within the circle. And that's what uh, that means. 
Now I have a little note here. The phrase in Christ, you read that many times in the scriptures, in Christ, which occurs 164 times in Paul's letters, 164 times. Christ in me, when Paul says Christ in me, means the exalted Christ living in Paul. The exalted Christ living in Paul. And Paul is in Christ. Christ, the exalted Christ, is spirit. Therefore, he can live in Paul and Paul in him. Now, I have an example that I wrote down, which I thought was made it a little clearer. It is likened to the air. That is, in us, the air is in us, and yet we are in the air. <laughs> you know, if we didn't have air in us, we couldn't live. And yet we live in the air around us. It surrounds us. And that's the way we live in Christ. And Christ lives in us. What a blessing for Christ to dwell in us and in us. Now as we think about God working His love in us, He works in us the new birth. Titus 3, 5. Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That's being born again, Brother Roger, being quickened by the Spirit of God, been given life. Before you have done anything, God already regenerates you. He gives us the love of God in Romans 5, 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given us. God's love is put into our hearts that we can love Him and, and adore Him and obey Him. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. All the way through these things, these are the fruit of the Spirit He gives to each one of us. He gives us the willing to do. And Philippians 2.12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both the will and the do of His good pleasure. He's the, the th love of God being worked in us. He not only gives us the will, but the do also. He helps us to do the things of God by His Spirit. You know, He gives us promises to believe and He gives us commands to obey. But He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He gives us the will to do it and the strength to do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Dwells in us. Dwells in us. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and dwells every believer, every child of God. First, the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He dwells in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. The Father dwells in us. 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, In what agreement hath the temple of God without us? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What a wonderful verse that is. God dwells in His congregation. He dwells in each one of us. He dwells with us. And you know, as I brought out before in the, in the book of Romans chapter 8, God is mentioned over 18 times by noun and pronouns. And it's the Father who said, For all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. 
The Father is speaking there. That's the Father who is controlling all things and working out all things. He sent the Son to be the Savior. He sent the Son to be our propitiation. He sent the Son to redeem us back to God. He sent the Son to reconcile us back to God. The Father's love. Oh, to how the Father's love. He loved us. That verse, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what that means is that the ones that are present tense, the word believeth there is present tense. The one who are presently tense believing in God shall not perish. It's not saying those who believe in the future, but those who are presently believing in Christ shall not perish but have everlasting life. Also, we see the Son dwells us. Ephesians 3.17 says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by, by faith. Beloved, faith is how we live the Christian life, by faith. That ye being rooted and grounded in love. His word dwells within us. And this is something sometimes we, as Dave emphasizes over and over about the word of God. It's, it is so important that we understand. It says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now this is a quote from Weiss Word Studies. He says, the word of Christ is the word spoken by Christ. This expression is not limited to his utterance while on earth in his humiliation, but refers to the entire body of truth as given through the New Testament writers. It refers to everything in the word of God. Let the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation 22, 21, let all the Word of God dwell in you, dwell in you, remain in you. And it goes on to say dwell, it means to be at home, to live in a home, like the word reside. The exhortation is to the effect that the Christian is so yield himself to the Word. We're to yield ourselves to the Word, not just read it, Brother Dave, but as we're reading it and meditating, we yield ourselves to it. If God commands something and we read that command, we're to obey it and yield to it. That's confessing that Jesus is Lord when we obey it. And that's what a blessing that is. The exhortation is to the effect that the Christian so yield himself to the Word that there is a certain at-homeness of the Word in his being. God's Word just dwells our whole being. Said must only, not only must the saint be yielded to the word, but he must have a good knowledge of it. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God that we know, that we know as he talks to us and guides our lives. See, we forget that. We think, well, the God's going to speak to me out some other way. He don't speak mystically. He speaks through the word. You want God, the Holy Spirit, to speak to your soul? Then you have to read the word of God. You must know the word of God. He speaks through his word. Through the word of God. He, the Spirit is who inspired the Word. He inspires the Word for you to read it, and when you read it, He'll impress verses on your heart to speak to you. And that's how God speaks to us today. He don't, you don't hear a voice. You don't hear an audible voice, but God speaks to us through the written Word, through the written Word. He, he talks to us and guides our lives. He can efficiently talk to us to extend to which we know the Word. That is the language He uses. And never forget that. The Spirit of God speaks through God's revelation to our hearts. 
Another thing we see God working in us is His power. Ephesians 3.20 Now unto Him that is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that's working in us. That word worker could be also uh, uh, translated operating in us. It's operating in us. What? The power of God. The power of God. This brings us to another thing. His Spirit is our comforter. John 14, 16, he says, I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Aren't you glad that Jesus gave us another comforter, the Holy Spirit, to comfort us? How does he comfort you? Again, through the written word, through the word of God. The living Christ lives in us. This is a blessed truth. Galatians 2.20, which we've all read many times. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, was Paul's confession. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is in heaven, but he also indwells each one of God's people. Paul says, I live, yet not I, not my ego is in charge, but Christ is in charge of my life through the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit speaks to us through the Word. So Christ lives in us, and we live upon Christ, the living Christ. Paul brings this out in 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He said, at least I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelation there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan to buffet me, at least I should be exalted above measure. You know, sometimes if we get exalted and get lifted up in pride, the Lord may have to send one of the messengers to us to bring us back down. It's easy to get lifted up with pride. We all have to guard against that. Especially Roger, Brother Dave, and myself being ministers of the Word. We have to be careful that we don't get lifted up thinking we're above others. Beloved, we're all equal. We're the servants of the living God. We're servants of the congregation. And we're to preach the word of God, but we have to be cautious too. It goes on to say, he said to Paul, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. In verse 9, he, and he said to me, talking about Jesus, talking to Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now I know at times in our lives we feel so weak. But when does Christ reveal Himself to us the most? In our weakness. Isn't that wonderful? If I'm on the mountaintop and I'm, everything is going wonderful, sometimes we don't realize, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing all right. But let, let, let us fall on our face and feel, see our weakness and then we cry to the Lord. Let a thorn in the flesh come to us. But remember, my grace is sufficient for God's people. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. When you're weak, then you can be strong. Paul confesses, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. I'm glad I've got these problems. Why? That the power of Christ may rest upon me. There's a special blessing comes upon a child of God when he's going through a trial. The presence of Christ is there to lift him up, to strengthen him, to help him. Oh, what a blessing it is, beloved. God is love. Verse 16 of chapter 4 of 1 John. 
And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. For love is of God. All love is from God as its fountain, especially that embodiment of love God manifested in the flesh. The Father also is love. First John 4, 8, which says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. The Holy Ghost sheds Sheds love is the first fruit abroad in our hearts, as we read earlier, Romans 5, 5. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. God gives us right off the beginning His love in our hearts. We need that. Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. It draws us. It pulls us to Him. More you see of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the more you live your Christian life, you'll see, boy, I need God's strength. I need God's love. I need God's compassion. I need God's forgiveness. I need God's mercy in my life as a Christian. Every day you get older and older in the Lord, you realize how much more you need the Lord. He lives in me, but I need to be constantly living upon Him in my life. For God is love. God as to His nature is love. That is, God is a loving God in His nature. It's His nature to be loving. God loves His people with an everlasting love. There are, there are three other statements in the New Testament concerning what God is in substance and nature. He is spirit, John 4.24. He's light, 1 John 1.5. He's a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. First, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You cannot worship God in the flesh. You can only worship God in the spirit and in truth. People try to worship God in the Old Testament outside of God's revealed will. What happened? God destroyed them. Saul offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and he shouldn't have done that, and he was punished for that. Other ones grabbed the ark one day to hold it up and God struck them dead. They, they were not to touch the ark. First John 1 5 said, and this is the message which we have heard of him that, and declaring to you that God is light and to him is no darkness at all. In other words, God is complete holiness. There is nothing dark in the Lord. He's complete holiness, righteous, so holy that even the angels cover their faces and say, holy, holy, holy unto the Lord. And it speaks about God in Hebrews 12, 29 being a consuming fire. Now that's to, that's to impress on our minds that we serve a God who is a God of love. We serve a God who is holy, but also God is a consuming fire. And He consumes that in our lives which is hurting us. He consumes that which shouldn't be in our lives. While the origin of love is in the being of God, the manifestation of love is in the coming of Christ and His death on the cross. How do we know God loves us? He sent His Son. He manifested His love to us. What a manifestation that was. First John 4.16, God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in Him. I have a note here. I thought this was a very good statement. Uh, and I believe sometimes young believers don't understand some of these things. Maybe older believers don't either. But I want you, I, I thought this was good, so I wrote it down. Only believers can love with God's kind of love. 
though not all to do, not though all not do, all do. Failure to love does not prove one is unregenerate. At times in our lives, we cannot love one another as we should. It doesn't mean you're not born again. If it were impossible for believers to fail to love other believers, then we would not have the command to do so. In other words, if I, if I can love and never be, I never will be commanded to do it because I do it automatically. And he goes on to say, by its very nature and any command, whether positive, do this, or negative, don't do that, implies that believers can do the opposite of what is commanded. They can disobey, thus believers can and do fail to love others, believers with God's love. The consequence is loss of fellowship with God as well as with other believers. So when we fail to obey God, because sometimes we obey God, sometimes we disobey God, we lose our fellowship with God. And when we lose our fellowship with God, it brings on God's fatherly chastisement. He would chastise us. And everyone who's without chastisement says in the book of Hebrews, are bastards and not sons. So our fellowship with God is important because that gives us strength, inner strength to face the world. The one abiding in love, in the love, characterizes the individual by his continual dwelling in the sphere of divine love just described. Since God is love, to abide in love is to abide in God. He who lives in the sphere of love must necessarily be permitted with love, resulting in a mutual internal relationship, he and God and God in him. Beloved, it's about dwelling in God's presence, in fellowship with God, and praying to God, enjoying the love of God when he comes upon you. It's such a blessing, and we don't want to lose that, because when we sin, we lose fellowship with God. God is love. Therefore, those who abide in love abide in God and He in them. What a blessing. He abides in us. He dwells us. And we dwell in Him. This love is active and continuing. It abases for one's attitude and actions. It means love for God, love for others, Love for both God and others. We're to love each other in the congregation. We're to love our family. We're to love the world. Those out there who need to know, have the knowledge of Jesus Christ, who He is. It says in 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. That's the command. For love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. It's the greatest evidence you can have that you're a child of God if you love one another. Love one another. Love the people of God. Love the family of God. Oh, love God. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. What a commandment it is. Now, 1 John 4, 17, in closing. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the world. What a blessing this is. It says in verse 228, And now little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear we may have confidence 
and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. I don't want to be ashamed when He appears. I want to be in fellowship with the Lord, walking with the Lord, obeying the Lord, pleasing the Lord, doing those things pleasing in His sight. The expression, love is perfected. It can mean in us or in our case, with us. Our companion, God's love has reached its goal in our lives when we also love and can communicate it to others. It's perfected, brought to maturity by our loving each other, by our loving God, obeying God. That's how love is perfected in our lives. As love is given us not to stay in our hearts, but it's to come out, it's to be manifested to others. How did God manifest His love to us? For Christ sent His Son to die on the cross, and God puts His love in our hearts that it can come out and comfort others, comfort other believers. That's how it's perfected in your life, as we share that love with others, demonstrate that love. What a blessing it is. Love has been perfected with us by this, namely having confidence on the day of judgment. Love has been perfected with us by this, namely our being like Him in, in this world. By remaining in God and He in us, love has perfected with us. It means we have reached God's goal for it. It means love has reached its full maturity or has come to its full expression. It means both reaching its goal and coming to the full development. What is meant having confidence on the day of judgment? The day of judgment is the final judgment at the end of the world. The confidence is in knowing that the verdict will be in our favor and knowing that love has been made perfect. We may have confidence because we are like that one which is referring to Jesus Christ. In what way are we like Christ? As Christ dwells in God, so we dwell in God. As Christ related to God in love and fellowship, so we are related to God. As Christ is the Son of God, so are we the sons of God. As Christ is righteous, so are we righteous. As Christ is loving, so are we loving. As Christ was the expression of God on earth, so we should be the expression of Christ on earth. As Christ is confident, so are we confident. As Christ is loved by God, so are we loved by God. And remember that we will not be ashamed at His coming. We will, we is, we are as pure as He is pure. We, as He is, so are we in the world. What does that mean? His righteousness is our righteousness, brother Roger. When Jesus comes, I will be seen not in my righteousness, but His righteousness. Beloved. My obedience is not my acceptance with God, but Jesus' obedience was imputed to my account. That's my righteousness before God. So we can have confidence at the second coming of God, of the Lord when He comes, and not be ashamed and not be uh, uh, have boldness and confidence because we will be seen in Christ, not in ourselves. And when we're resurrected, John says, we shall see Him as He really is. We'll see Him for the first time as the glorious resurrected Lord. And then we will be changed into His likeness. I tell you, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day when we shall see the Lord as He truly is. I pray that these few words will bless you as you meditate upon these things. What a wonderful God you serve. Father, may you bless us now in the... As we sing our closing hymn, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen.
Are we going to have this uh, business first or are you going to have a song first? Okay. Anyone have a song?